Welcome to Literary Fiction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia. Hi Carrie. How are you doing today? I'm not going to lie, I'm very warm. Yeah, it's get, it's hot and it's getting hotter in this studio. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> we don't have aircon, it's the hottest day of the year. I can visibly see sweat on your face. Yeah, yours too. It's but nice. Think, yeah, it's Glow, like relaxing, glowy. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and I brought us some uh, Jamaican ginger beer. Yeah. Got ice cold cans. My so. throat is ready. No, that's <laughs> wrong. <laughs> anyway, let's leave that aside. I am excited about today's show. I am really excited too. Because we are talking about the youths. Yeah. More specifically, we're talking about novels that engage with youth culture from A Clockwork Orange to the latest YA sensations. We'll be asking, do novels have something to tell us about the teenage experience and about the subcultures that arise from it, from flappers to mods to punks to ravers? Our guest today is Guy Gunaratna whose explosive first novel, In Our Mad and Furious City, is set over 48 hours on a housing estate in northwest London and told through the voices of five of its residents, three of whom are teenage boys, hence the theme. Octavia, do you want us to tell us a little bit more about Guy? I definitely do. Uh, Guy Gunaratna is a writer, filmmaker and video journalist who has covered human rights stories around the world and was shortlisted for the Fourth Estate and Guardian Books BAME Short Story Prize. And we're also completely thrilled to say that today we found out In Our Mad and Furious City, which is Guy's first novel, by the way, has just been longlisted for the Booker Prize. Um, so congratulations, Guy. Yeah. I think we say congratulations to Guy many times yeah. across the course of our <laughs> interview with him. But yeah, it's very exciting news. Um, and Guy now lives between London, England and Mal- Malmo, Sweden. Yeah. And we actually have the first exclusive post longlist uh, interview. Which is very exciting for That's us. That's right. Yeah. I'm sure it's changed his perspective entirely. <laughs> <laughs> so today we'll be talking to Guy about In Our Mad and Furious City. We'll talk more widely about the theme youth culture. And finally, we will give our book recommendations as usual. So stay with us as we attempt to get down with the kids for the next hour on Literary Friction. Guy Gunaratna, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. So we have asked you to start with a reading. Do you mind setting it up and then just going ahead? Sure, absolutely. So this is um, the very beginning of the book. It's the opening. The book has five different voices. Uh, the first and the last, so the prologue and the epilogue, is are actually kind of a collective voice. So um, we'll help set the scene. There were things that I learned to call fury as a younger. Fury was a fearsome drum. Some hungry and hot temper, ill spirit of madness never touched us for long, but followed our bodies for time. See London. This city taints its young. And if you're from here, you'd know, innit? All our faces were pinched sour, even the good few I spent my early way with. We were all born into the menace from day dot. These were the hidden violences, day-long deaths that snuffed out our small and limited futures. We grew up around these towers, so... Struggle was a standard echo in our speech, in thought, in action. But it was only after the release of that one video, clip from the phone of a witness, that everyone else saw the truth. The image on every news channel and paper, a black boy had killed an off-duty soldier. Soldier boy, we called him. The black young had stopped soldier boy and struck him down with a cleaver. Then he wrapped his body in a black cloth and strung him up from a road sign. Stuff was dark. Dark as because it happened in a space so familiar. In our city, on road, and in broad daylight. The sound of the black boy's voice came next, shouting into the camera about the infidel, the sinful kufar. It was on radio and television, an endless loop. He called himself the Hand of Allah, but to us, he looked as if he just rolled out the same school gates as us. He had the same trainers we wore, 
spoke the same road slang we used. The blood was not what shocked us. For us, it was his face like a mirror, reflecting our own confused and frightened hearts. See, violence made this city. Those living, born and raised, grew up with it like an older brother. And on that final day when flames licked the domes of our painted mosque, we were all far beyond saving. Fury was like a fever in the air, a corrupt mass of bodies pulsing together in pain and rhetoric. Muhajirun were herding our people along August Road and had a stand on a burnt earth like a testament. There was violence in our brotherhood, that much is clear, though we never know how much of that violence came from us or the road beneath our feet. We were London's scowling youth, and as siblings of rage, we were never meant to stray beyond the street. We might not have known it with our eyes so alight, but it was true. Our miseducation is proof, isn't it? Those school corridors were like cold chambers, anyone who went to St. Mary's would attest. Our bodies were locked for verbal assaults, our words clipped and surging with their own code, and fuck anyone else who disagreed, you know? Violence shattered our language, and our lines tagged the streets. They'd read us on walls and open seams and dim lamplight. We cotch and park benches and waste air, sock-mouthed and bound, stupid to our fates the entire time. Our tongues were so soaked in our defences, we hoped only to outlast the day. Just look at how we spoke to one another. In it, though, my man and Pussio. Our friendships we called bloods, and our homes we called our ends. We reveled in throwing crafted curses at our mothers and receiving hard slaps to heads. Our combs cut lines in our hair and we scarred our eyebrows with blades. We became warrior tribes of manland, slave kings and palm-swiping cubs we were. Our parents knew nothing. And most others, most others only knew us from the noise we made at the back of the buses. Close without touch. That was the only love permitted, though it was deeply felt among our own. We smoked weed together borrowed idioms and shocked American verses. In our Corsic speech, we threw out platitudes and our guts our feisty wit. It was like we lived upon jagged teeth in the dark in this bone-cold London city, a young nation of mongrels constantly measuring ourselves against what we were supposed to be, which was what I couldn't tell you. For those of us who had an elsewhere in our blood, some foreign origin, we had richer colours and ancient callings to hear, fight with, more likely, and fight for, a push-pull of ancestry and meaning. For me, that meant Pakistan and its local masks, which in these dimensions meant going mosque and dodging Mahajaroon. For my brothers on a state, they were from all over. Jamaicans, Irish Pakis, Nigerians, Ghanaians, South Indians, Bengalis. Proper Commonwealth kids, innit? Even the Arab squaddies from UAE. We'd all spy those private schoolboys from Belmont and Mill Hill, and we'd wonder, how would it have felt to come from the same story? To have been moulded out of one thing and not of many. There was nothing more foreign to us than that, nothing more boring and pale to imagine. Ours was a language, a dubbing of noise, while theirs was a one-note, void of new feeling in any sense of place. And place was our own, this place. Whether we heard the whispers of our older roots never mattered. What mattered for us was the present, terse and cold, where we could make our own coarse music. Thank you, Guy. That really... It's a very, very powerful opening to a book. Um, And it really struck me on the page, but it also really struck me how wonderful it is to hear it read aloud as well. And I want to ask you a little bit more about about speech and voice and things like that. But um, I did want to start by asking that I read in another interview that the first sentence of the novel, which is there were things that I learned to call fury as a younger, were actually the first words that you wrote from this novel. And that strikes me as, as quite unusual and and pretty amazing, actually, that the first words you wrote were also the first words and they stayed that way. So can you talk about that? And did you 
did you sort of feel those words power as soon as you wrote them? Yeah, I mean, it was, it definitely was the first thing I put down on, on paper, even without even thinking it would ever turn into anything. I just knew that there was something there I needed to, to confront or interrogate, I guess is the word. Um, you know, after, I mean, the, 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 the spur for the book really was um, The Killing of Lee Rigby a couple of years ago. Um, I mean, in particular, one of the killers, Michael Adablajo, um, one of the, uh, the, the, the young man who had grew up, grown up in London and who had committed, him and another guy had committed the, the murder. And the video that went down the rounds is sort of um, referenced in the opening where some brave woman went up to Michael Adablajo and actually asked him uh, why he did what he did. Um, and as the opening suggests, like it wasn't really what he did that disturbed me, which sounds crazy now, but it really was something in a way he um, carried himself and um, the road dialect he was using, the clothes he wore even. It was something that was instantly identifiable. He did really look like someone I went to school with. Um, and, you know, that's when, you know, as, as it says, like terrorism becomes way too close for comfort. And I knew there was something there. It was disturbing me to a degree that I needed to figure something out. I I remember just opening up um, the laptop and just typing away. And I think that the words the the word fury came up because I remember seeing that video and and, and feeling something, um, and it it felt like fury. And and that was the line that stuck. And it's strange. I didn't really consider changing it. Like it it didn't really come to a point where even with uh, the edits with my brilliant editor marion harrington at tinder press like there's not that we did a lot of work on the, the opening and the and the and the envelope um but that line had stayed from the very beginning yeah definitely and the concept of fury is one that it lands incredibly potently i think for every reader because it's you know fury is a specific emotion that we don't necessarily feel on the daily, but we understand as being like a powerful motivator. Um, and it's definitely something that really unites, obviously, all of the characters in your book. I mean, just for listeners, like the novel follows five characters over the course of 48 hours in a council estate in Neasden in North London. Um, and how did you choose which characters to explore these feelings through? And were there any that you ended up uh, leaving out that you thought about including? Like, did you cut back on your cast or did you always know which voices you were going to use? Yeah, it's so strange. Like, I, I've heard, I never used to have um, friends who were writers before. Like, I, I, it was never really a consideration for me when I was writing this book to ever really think about an audience or, or, or getting published in that way. So a lot of the questions I get now in terms of characterization and choosing things it doesn't actually i don't know if if that really resonates with me as much i, I, I know some writers now where, where we've discussed this and i've realized how different we all are in terms of how we approach writing I, and i remember that the first draft i don't know if a lot of people do this but like it's kind of an exploration more than anything else right like it's sort of like following voices and i knew that at the very beginning the three young men selvan arden and yusuf were the first sort of pull and i know yusuf was going to kind of be in the center ground and have sylvan arden um follow their own course and i knew that the the idea of exploration it's just okay and i i know i'm disturbed by this idea of extremism um i want i knew that it was that the voices themselves were going to be exploring that theme so i kind of forgot about that sort of 
the intellectual curiosity at the beginning and, and I knew that the character was going to be washed through with that kind of language um, and that's what they were trying to figure out um, it really was the first draft was kind of around let's see where these voices take me and I knew it would take me to places that were uncomfortable um, and I knew and I know halfway through is when Carolyn and, and Nelson turned up um, and it's a strange thing. And I, I knew there's, there was this a compulsion to, to, to want to know who Nelson was lying in that bed. I needed to, needed to figure out his story. And Carolyn's voice was just crazy insistent to be heard. So I, I knew that, oh, yeah, she's not going to go away. So I'm going <laughs> I'm, I'm to have to, to, to dive into her character a little bit more. And um, I knew she'd be... Uh, referencing the wider theme of extremism and violence too. I just knew that was going to be the case. So it really was a very frustrating but also surprising exploration at the very beginning. And the first draft is because I, I, I did that. It ended up pretty terrible. It was kind of garbage. It went all over the place. And the second draft and the third is when I figured out what the hell was going on. It was, but it's, it's not a process I'd recommend because it's really difficult but what I, I feel as if I'm doing it for the same same I'm doing it again for the, for the next book as well and I've realized how difficult this is um uh and it really did come from not knowing how to write a book so I, you know I just went in but I know that it's worth it because every so often something would happen a character would say something or do something that would be so surprising that would link directly to, to what I was exploring. So it's worth meandering, I guess, but like, at least for me, it was worth it. This is a novel so, so driven by voice, not just because you have, um, m- most of it is in the, the first person, except for those, um, the, those bits at the beginning and the end, but also because they're such distinct voices. Um, you have the three boys who their language is so infused with grime and you almost feel like they have their own language with each other. There's Carolyn, who's obviously, she's an older person on the estate. She's from an Irish background and moved to London when she was very young. And Nelson, who was a sort of part of the Windrush generation and, and has been in, in London for a while. So when you were writing those voices, it sounds like what you were talking about in terms of characterization, you sort of let those things come to you. But was there anything you did to sort of research or think about or find ways of really capturing voices that are different from your own? Sure. Uh, yeah. So the, at the very beginning is little research, but like I kind of, I'm kind of a geek. So like I, I, the, the troubles and, and the knowing how race rights have just been interests of mine for a while. I, I, that's also probably why that kind of confused into the narrative um but the one thing i did do was i mean right uh, the, the novel as it is um it switches perspective so you go from Arlen to carolyn to nelson to nelson uh, to selden back again kind of thing but um the writing process was sort of the one one character all the way through so i'd go i would start and finish with carolyn all the way through and then um a next character, but I kind of knew where they would intersect, as it were. It's sort of uh, the structure, sort of it's broken up into chapters, sections, I suppose, and each section has a kind of micro theme, I guess. But um, so I kind of knew where they would interact, and I knew what what sort of part I was in. Um, but I mean, just to stay consistent, it'd be crazy for me to start 
writing the book as it is in as it is now um i had to you know make sure there was only one voice i'd be listening to and go all the way through if that makes sense um the the research as well also happened after the fact i kind of knew where i was and what i was doing and the references were kind of vagueish mm. um but then subsequently yeah uh, a lot of books a lot of immersion into films and looping scenes and movies and that kind of thing a lot of other writers I'd read for, for specific dialect. Well, you, and you mentioned movies. I mean, when I started the book initially, I thought of Latin, the Matthew Katowicz yeah. film, which I loved and then was thrilled when it turned up in the book um, yeah. as a reference. And, you know, I like I still think about those three, those three lads. And yeah, that film was made too. in 1995. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but there's something about it that feels so relevant. And I, you know, reading your book, reminded me of how relevant that film still feels and you know the 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 theme of the of the show that we're doing around your book is is basically youth culture and we're thinking about what makes um youth culture tick at different times and and one of the things that sticks out for me is you know as you say there's references to music and Carrie mentioned grime music before and films Mm. um and in your narrative there are characters who communicate across gulfs of different versions of their ex- their life experience through like music there's this brilliant scene where the irish kid is speaking to french guys right. in yeah, the boxing yeah. ring and and they <laughs> discover a shared love of these particular rappers and all of that but like i, I don't know I, I i i wanted to ask you about what you think makes um something like Latin made in 1995 your book which is very very contemporary like I don't know, what is the thing that's connecting them? Is it like, is it this fury? Is it this sense of alienation and fury that these young men are feeling? Or I'm not sure. I, the one thing I, I know I'm excited about when it comes to, like, you know, I guess youth culture itself is the idea. I mean, I, I sort of, I've followed grind music for a, a long time and it's sort of, that for me, that genre itself, like, or the musical movement is as significant to me as, as punk was to British music in the eighties, it was, it's as British and as homegrown as, as anything else. And it has infusions of influences. But for me, the most interesting thing, and I think this is, um, what Lion taught me, but it is this idea of just uncompromising in terms of like honest and honest experiences. Lion for me, was a film that shouldn't work in terms of, how difficult it is to sort of access the, the 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 internal references it has and the logic inside the characters and the and the place. If you didn't know, I didn't. I don't know about you know Ben Wells in in in, in Paris and in the outskirts of Paris, but like something about it because it was uncompromising and because it was like it was almost like it captured an essence um, and stuck with that and didn't really care too much whether people got it or not it, it it was what it was and i know that's been a theme of mine where I, I love writers who write like that and just use language that it's uncompromising it is what it is um and it's on its own terms grime for me was is is similar it's almost a reclamation of um that culture or subculture a london youth culture but also in, right now it's 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 a british culture grime is happening in birmingham and in Manny in, in, in Glasgow. Um, and for me, it was almost like it's uncompromising in that it really doesn't care if it impresses anyone. 
it's for us kind of thing. And that's, I think that's something that's interesting. It also goes through the, the theme of the book. It's the characters who, I mean, they, they have to confront their own furies, their own extremisms throughout the book. And for me, and I think this is true of the life, uh, the ones that do sort of end up and survive are the ones that really keep hold of that essence of being honest to your own self. And, I, you know, it, it sounds pat, but I really think there's a truth there. It's It turned up in Lion, and I've always been disappointed by depictions of, of um, not just youth culture in film or in, te- in television, but in literature and the way um, the dialect itself is portrayed, too. And I've always been really annoyed by depictions like Ali G or something, or, or people just do nothing. Really funny shows, but um, there's a problem if the only depiction of a certain culture is is clownish or comical, because if, if when it comes to um, important or challenging subject matter, it's very easy to dismiss art that comes out of that culture. This is why grime took a long time to be accepted, I guess, by an established industry. The language for me was what kept me up in the morning and, and got me to start work is I, I didn't care if, if um, the language itself had its own logic. Um, it's almost like you, you kind of have to be all right with um, following the language as it is because it, it I mean it, I wasn't worried about that because it, it I know I was speaking to an honest experience so I really wasn't worried about a sensibility or, or, or something external that um, would have a problem with it and I think that's actually what people have been resonating um, resonating with with this book it's kind of like road dialect next to northern Irish dialect next to western Indian patois on on its own terms and somehow it does work for, for me London is is language right that it is a kind of clash and a mulch of different dialects and vernaculars all not harmoniously at times but like it is um, crashing into each other that's what London is to me and that's I hope that was what came through the language too. I wanted to ask about Arden because there's you actually include so Arden um, for listeners is a is a really great rapper and um, you include uh, some of his verses in the book and I wondered if that was an easy slip for you into that mode of expression or if you had any trepidation about it Um, yeah how did that feel? It's just a strange one. Uh, I didn't really feel self-conscious about it or really conscious about it. it uh, he seemed like someone who was constantly trying to just fling verses um, onto the wall. Like he, he just wanted to, he needed to let let himself express things. And, I, you know, I've had that feeling when I was younger. I, I never wrote, you know, spat bars or anything when I was a kid. But, like, he he had that element to him. And that's why, he, you know, his rhythm is quite kind of uh, agitated almost. Um, and th- those verses come out at moments where um, he is sort of, uh, you know, humiliated or he, he's going through something and it's his way of sort of channeling his own sort of fury it's own, his own fanaticism i guess in a different way like through music right through creativity um and his anger um but I, I you know i didn't feel that uh it wasn't too difficult it, it was only that i needed to make sure i didn't think too much about the verse because then i would just edit forever in terms of like and i don't know how to do that so i'm just gonna i'm, I'm gonna uh, you know write as sort of loosely as possible just to make sure that the things I want in, like sort of embedded within the verses were there in terms of Arden and his character. But like, um, I didn't want to edit that too much. I just wanted that to 
stay as is as, as much as necessary. Which that's what I was more conscious of. I was conscious of not thinking too much about those sections. This novel is set um, mainly within the confines of a, a council estate in northwest London in Neasden, and it's a novel about London. I mean, you've you've talked already about um, the you, you know London being this place where all of these different dialects and people with different backgrounds come together in a space. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your relationship with London and especially the, you know, how London is in this novel is is a place where where there's a lot of love, but there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of violence. Um, do, do you think that is is specific to London? You know, what 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 particularly about London do you see as creating these situations that you depict in the novel? Um, man, I don't know, like, you You both have lived in London for a while, right? Yeah, I was born here. Carrie's, Carrie's an immigrant. I'm an, <laughs> yeah, but I, I only, well, I've lived here for 10 years. Yeah, you've been here yeah. a while, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have just a complex relationship with it, with, with this city. I just deeply love it. Like, it's, you know, it's really part of me. Anywhere else I go, I become super London when I'm elsewhere especially in America <laughs> yeah. but like I, I, really, I really you know it, it really is part of me but there's a line in the book that describes London as a place that you can love but it won't necessarily love you back yeah and I know it, it's an unkind city for a lot of people um and it really isn't conducive to so it's a jagged place I mean Sylvan for me sort of typifies the kind of young man that a place that london can mold he's quite hard hard hearted and is necessarily detached because that's really how he knows how to survive in that place it's a place with too many sharp elbows you know and that's i, I don't know like not much of this book is i don't know it, it, it was really how, how i feel about london but as you say that there is something here that is really quite beautiful I say here, I'm actually in Sweden, but you know, <laughs> uh, there's something about London that really compels people to, to really just want to want to be there and want to sort of not not own the place, but it, you need you want to have, find that residence and that frequency that London sort of has, and you're constantly shifting, figuring out like, okay, no, I need to you know up my game or or, or, or lower it, especially if you're a creative person at least that that was my experience it's wanting to find that resonance and sometimes that's a difficult thing to do um yeah totally. so it's, it's, it's all very very it, it's um it is very long actually in, in that it, it's very frictionful uh <laughs> Uh, experience to live there and be and, and be a londoner wherever you're from to be a Londoner is, is a difficult gamble I don't know if it's worth it. I'd like to think it is, but I don't know. Oh, I know what you mean. I always joke that I have uh, Stockholm Syndrome for London because I, <laughs> yeah. I leave for a year at a time and then I'm always back, you know, always. I can't mm -hmm. shake it. I loved um, the way Craig Taylor talks about London in, in his book Londoners, where it's a sort of it's a city that, as you say, has really sharp edges. But for that reason, almost anyone can be a Londoner. It's like it's both incredibly non-accepting, but also because of that very accepting as well 
um, I've, I've always felt that way about London. Yeah, I also think that there's a real warmth and openness that you get from real Londoners mm. that, that, that is the thing that makes the hardness of it possible. You know, that there is actually, like, real, true Londoners are people who aren't actually scared to talk to anyone who's very different from them because they understand that that's the nature of the city. We all rub right. along. That's exactly and that's right. really magical, which is something that I have found lacking in cities like Paris or Madrid where I've spent time where yeah. it's not such a kind of cohesive energy. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's also, it's a, it's, a, it's a sea of extremes, right? So the, the, the love is actually quite intense. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, for if, sure. If people people who, who are there, I guess it is kind of like Stockholm Central. You kind of club together and, and really kind of... Uh, there, there is a, a beauty here that is elicited because of the nature of the sea, which is a, a great thing. And it, you know, that's that's in the book too. Um, you you say that you're talking to us from Sweden. Is there anything that living in Sweden has specifically made you notice about London or the UK that you hadn't thought about before? You know, yeah, actually, and it's it's an actual cliche, which you know how they say if you want to write about place, get out of it. And, it, oh, yeah. and it's, it's like, I didn't know that was true until I realized I, I, I wrote this book, the majority of it outside of London in Berlin um, and Helsinki for a little bit. Like I realized that, and I realized that um, I tried to do some, some edits and, and stuff in, in London. Um, and actually start writing my second book in London. And it was really difficult because the, any element, it was right outside and it, it there was less, of my imagination at play. I don't know. I can't really explain it. Um, but I know that it's true and it's really annoying. Then, <laughs> is that what I've got to do? But like, cities to write about. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe yeah. you need, you just need to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Guy, it's been such a pleasure to have you on Literary Friction. Thank you so much for coming on. And I feel I have a lot more questions I could have asked you. Yeah, me book. too. <laughs> oh, it's entire pleasure. Thanks so much. This is Literary Fiction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is youth culture. And I have to admit, I already feel completely out of my depth. <laughs> Why? Were you involved with youth culture? Yes, I was. I was a grunger. Well, I was not. <laughs> you were. I didn't do any youth oh, culture. You played football. You did, You know, there was a scene. Mm, yeah, there wasn't much of a scene. I was not cool. I didn't do cool subculture things. I, I mean, was very mainstream. But cool. what is cool mean anyway well maybe we'll find who's out who's the arbiter of on cool this Carrie. show <laughs> maybe that's the question we're going to answer yes <laughs> um but i think before we go any further it is worth defining what youth culture is and i've turned to my friend the collins dictionary which, which defines it what were you gonna I say i was just gonna say i think sums up exactly yeah yeah this is how i started all my essays in high school the activities and behavior associated with young people now, of course, that doesn't really get at the complexity of this term, which arose largely with the invention of the teenager in the 20th century. Um, and a lot of scholars have talked about this. The teenager is a very recent idea. And specifically, the teenager, as someone who rebels against the sort of um, mainstream culture of the day mm. or popular culture. And I think, you know, it's cool that we're recording in Britain and we have our very own grunger here because I think in many <laughs> ways <laughs> Britain has been kind of at the forefront of 
the youth culture um, from, you know, mods and punks and grunge. And I think um, Guy made a really compelling case for grime being, yeah, big time. being a, re- a homegrown, real youth culture as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, grunge was very influenced by the States, though, because it was Nirvana and all of those kinds of bands. But you're you're also right. I didn't mean to just completely undermine your point there. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right about grunge there. Carrie looks quite sad. Um, <laughs> no, you're completely right. I mean, I think the thing that's important about youth culture is actually the word culture being synonymous with the word youth. Because the point of what makes youth culture powerful whenever and however it's come around is that, you know, the mainstream adult culture def- decides to be the arbiter of what is interesting and what is worthwhile and what is um, significant and philosophical and all of these things. And what youth culture does is says, fuck you, you don't know anything. We have our own culture that we're not actually trying to invite you into. This is not a space that you're welcome. This is for us, by us. And that's that's kind of the end of it, which I think is incredibly powerful. And it's why youth cultures of all different kinds resonate on the same sort of frequency. Like, you know, I... I grew up listening to grunge music and rock and roll and all that stuff, but also UK Garage. Grime is very different, but I feel an understanding because it the potency of it is it's performing a similar function, mm-hmm. just in a different way and in a different cultural milieu than the stuff that I was kind of taking on. And also the thing about what a, what a youth culture of any kind offers to the people who participate in it is a sense of cohesive identity kicking against the pricks, basically. And that's why... You know, it can be it. It's tribal, and you know, it usually involves its own form of language. Whether that's a visual vernacular, like you know, we all wore baggy, waggy, baggy jeans that we got from Camden with the, you know, crotch down by our knees and and pockets, and the, the, they were white. They were like twenty five centimeters wide. I mean, it was a whole. It was yeah, a Jenko jeans. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. I remember that. I saw that. I <laughs> <laughs> looked at it. <laughs> no, but um. So you, you've mentioned so far fashion and music, which I think are two things very, very associated with youth culture. But I want to tease out books' relationship to youth culture. I mean, I think in some ways books aren't the inspiration and arbiters of this kind of culture in the same way that maybe fashion and music are. Um, that's maybe not true as true with poetry. Um, like you think of the beats, that's very bound up in words and language. But Maybe because books aren't as immediate, they're not as sort of consumable. I'm not sure what you think. I think totally. I think it's also because if you th- if you can think back to that stage of life, you know, as a teenager, you're you're in constant movement. It's such a dynamic moment in in one's development, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. Words on a page are kind of not really where it's at. And also, there's something prohibitive about literature you know you have to have access to books you have to have uh, literacy uh, you know it, the, it doesn't transcend linguistic boundaries whereas music and fashion they don't you don't need to have mastery of any language to be able to appreciate them and I think it's also just about mass mass culture and you can listen to a song with someone you can't really read a book with yeah somebody. and you can recreate it because then you can sing it together and you know, you, you exactly. It's about creating shared identities and then participating in the in those shared identities simultaneously. Yes, and I think you know we we shouldn't discard books here. And I I think maybe the connection Never. that <laughs> the connection that books have to youth culture is as a way of chronicling youth culture, which is certainly what Guy does in in Our Mad and Furious City, but a lot of other 
writers have done it. Um, I think A Clockwork Orange, for instance, is a great example of this by Anthony Burgess. And I think what's so powerful about A Clockwork Orange is it not only sort of creates a youth culture, but it imagines what youth culture will be like in the future. But as we've been talking about, it resonates with other books about youth culture. And I don't know, I sort of wrote down a list of of things that books that I think do this well, White Teeth by Zadie Smith. I think, you know, again, I think Guy is is taking cues from from Zadie in the way that she writes about how young people speak to each other and live and talk. Um, I think Kate Tempest does it in her poetry. What were you thinking about? Yeah, I was thinking about Kate Tempest as well and, and Zadie Smith big time. Brick Lane by Monica Ali. Um, came up a lot. Um, I mean, I thought about Irvin Welsh, uh, Irvin Welsh's writing, and Brett Easton Ellis as well. I think, I think you're absolutely right that where literature comes into play with this is about chronicling it. I think that there's also, and I'm going to make a statement and then not back it up. So I'm sorry, guys, a bit weedy, but I also feel like there's a lot of literature that tries really hard to capture youth culture and fails fucking miserably because there is also something very cringe about an adult perception looking back and trying to capture it because that's the opposite of what youth culture is trying to do. Like I said, I really think that something that's inherent in it is that it's for the youth by the youth. So there is a tension in trying to pin it down, which is why I think when a writer is able to do it successfully like Guy, it is particularly exciting because I I think it's actually a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, and it's interesting. A lot of people think the first YA novel is The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton which was written in the 60s by an actual teenager about teenagers and their lives. There you go. And that kicked off this fad. So it's, um, yeah, I think you're right that authenticity is really, really essential in in books about youth culture. And that actually brings me to the, the idea of YA fiction, which has really taken off recently. There's a great article which I would recommend by Michael Cart in the Smithsonian about YA and how how it arose and and grew up and he's he argues that YA starts in the 1970s when writers start writing for young adults rather than writing about young adults and yeah. writing young adults in their own image rather than this sort of fantasy image of lockers and football teams and proms and cheerleaders and things like that. Um, Basically, the difference between structures that society tries to impose on teenagers in order to contain them in some way, the school, the, you know, the social, um, the, the, the jock, the babe, these, they're, conditioned, they're conditional roles that pre-exist. The difference between that, which is yeah, all about containment and, and regulation. In some ways, it's difficult to talk about this without addressing all of the films which have chronicled youth culture and maybe done so better than than books have like len came up yeah um uh, a clockwork orange of course may Mm. be more successful than the novel yeah um in in many ways the warriors for me i don't know if you've seen that that film from the 70s the warriors which is just it's all about tribal identities it's Mm. fucking brilliant but it's you know you you watch that now and it's just as powerful and just as relevant and it's kind of it's an extreme um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not a parody. Uh, it's like a, ca- a caricature, basically, of everything we've just been talking about. But it's so on point. <laughs> and then, you know, Dazed and Confused, that's a film all... And I love I love that film. I love the soundtrack. I think that's the thing that, you know, film can capture the elements that we've been kind of talking about again and again, as well as it can do narrative. It can also do fashion and music all in one mm-hmm. um, in a more succinct way than literature. Literature has to try a little bit harder to bring that 
music in. But again, referring back to Guy's book, that's what's so great about it because it's so now you can listen to the grime songs that he includes in the book. It it feels it feels like a more um, three dimensional mm-hmm. exploration of youth culture. Let's talk about our favorite youth culture books. Um, Octavia, do you want to? tell me yours i will tell you mine um for me it's got to be junk by melvin burgess which when we decided on the theme it came straight into my mind um it had such an, a, a huge impact on me as a, as a young teenager um it was published in 1996 so 22 years ago which makes me feel a little bit dizzy i have to admit um and it, it kind of came out at a time when ya fiction wasn't really a thing so um you know i was reading around it, it it wasn't expected to be that successful and it ended up being a massive hit um it was actively aimed at teenagers which is the essence of as we were saying youth culture and youth cultural products um as the title suggests it's about drugs but more than that it's really about the culture that surrounds hard drug taking basically and it's very literal highs and lows um it's not a moralistic book it's it, the characters have a wonderful time as well as a very depraved and, and tragic time. It's set in Bristol. It's a story of a couple of runaways who find a squat and um, they there fall into heroin addiction and they embrace an anarchist way of living. Um, it's in the first person and it's not like Guy's book is told from various points of view. So the voices really come through as uh, separate from one another. And it's as much about friendship, camaraderie in the face of hardship um, as it is about the dark stuff that inevitably follows when you know they first start smoking heroin and then and moves on into into heavier sort of scenarios. And I first read it when I was in my second year of secondary school, and it it absolutely blew me away because it was the gateway to a whole new kind of literary power. I'd been reading a lot of like you know canonical literature essentially that was from the past and was very serious and was about big ideas and i i'm doing silly voices i love that kind of book but this was my first experience of literary youth culture really and i wasn't shooting up heroin but i was having comparable experiences you know in terms of their intensity and um i felt that classic teenage feeling of me against the world or me and my friends against the establishment me and my friends against the school or our parents whatever it was so it really really spoke to that um and I, and I also thought that, you know, it, it stood in such sharp relief to other books about young people that I had been reading, like the fucking Famous Five, you know, and these other books that create the this like rural idyll of youth, which was very much at odds with my experience as an inner city child. So there was something incredibly potent about that it, for that reason. Um, and I remember I remember giving a presentation about it in my English class. <laughs> And my teacher expressed concern about me afterwards. And I think that my enthusiasm for the book made her worry about my extracurricular activities, <laughs> which was kind of great. But th- there was that sense of, you know, this this element of youth culture invading the classroom and creating some kind of tension, which is, was exactly what Burgess was aiming at. And he really, really succeeds. I haven't ever revisited it. I'd be interested to see if it stands up now. Cool. I don't really want to read it for some reason. I don't it's very much not your thing yeah i don't like reading about drugs no um not because i don't you know but it's it's also just taste it's just not my kind of thing yeah Yeah. um i'm going to recommend the last picture show by larry mcmurty i've Um, never i've never heard of that well i'll tell you all about it (laughs) you well some of our listeners might know this title best from its film adaptation made in the 1970s which is very much considered a classic it was nominated for all kinds of awards and it still is kicking around 
Um, but the novel is really great too. Uh, it was published in 1966, set in the 1950s in a small Texan town featuring Sonny and Duane and their struggle to get through senior year in their small town. Um, McMurtry, you might have heard of him. He's probably most famous for writing the novel Lonesome Dove, which is this big, epic, sweeping Western. It was made into a movie. It's all about the frontier and horses and things like this. And this is very much not Lonesome Dove. Um, It's all set in this one town. Nothing really happens. Um, It's based on his own experience growing up in a small town. And what it does do, though, is capture that experience of teenage ennui. Um, you know, the intensity with which we feel things at that age and the intensity with which we want to fly away from any situation we're in and sex and love and what those things feel like when you experience them for the first time. And it's just a great friendship novel. It's a great novel about being a teenager and, um, and the sort of world you create for yourself outside of the world in which you live. It sounds good. I think it's interesting that you chose a book that's set in a small town. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe it resonated with me. Yeah, it must have done. More than junk. (laughs) (laughs) God. (laughs) We are what we are. We are what we are. This is Larry Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with my co-host, Octavia Bright, and also Guy, our author friend, who has come back for his book recommendation, as usual. So, Octavia, do you want to start with yours? I do. Um, I just finished a book that I really, really enjoyed, and I read incredibly quickly, called The Pisces by Melissa Broder. And um, it was recommended to me by a friend who was like, I've just read the most insanely sexy book of all time. You're going to read it, and you're going to go wild. And I thought, okay, that's pretty high praise from this particular friend who loves a sexy book. Um, And it's very sexy, (laughs) and I really enjoyed it. Um, It's very clever. It feels pretty zeitgeisty in lots of ways. Um, And even though it's it's actually engaging quite a lot with Greek mythology, um, it's it's a very arch, witty reimagining of the siren tale, essentially. Um, But the thing that I think I liked about it the most, apart from the sex scenes, which were very hot, was that, it actually kind of fills this space that we've noticed before in literature on the show, which is stories about addiction and recovery that are not just doom and gloom or or that are not autobiographical necessarily. That's fiction. Um, so it's narrator Lucy as an academic struggling to finish her thesis. Also, obviously, I recognize that experience <laughs> very profoundly <laughs> from my... Very, um, I know. Close to your life. Babes. I mean, yes. <laughs> <laughs> although, although also not for everyone who reads the book complicated anyway um lucy an academic struggling to finish her thesis about sappho in the wake of a bad breakup she goes to house sit for her sister in california and in between really awful tinder dating and a lot of group therapy for her problem with love and sex addiction she meets this really sexy young guy down at the water's edge and he's always swimming um clue spoiler here if you read the book you'll never look at a fish in the same way again that's all i'm going to say about that um there's a lot of sex in the book Broda does a really good job of exploring all its possible iterations. Terrible sex, exploitative sex, romantic, prosaic, really hot, and everything in between. Um, it's definitely not for everybody. Stylistically, the writing's maybe a little bit cold, um, a little bit sort of detached. 
And uh, because it's about addiction, it's also obviously about selfishness and solipsism and irresponsibility, which are not things that loads of people want to dwell in in their kind of reading life. Um, but yeah, and I, I can imagine detractors of it naming it a very millennial novel in a way that's derogatory and I don't think that would be fair and also the protagonist is 38 so it would also be fairly inaccurate um but I found it to be really well observed it's also very very funny um and in spite of its mythical kind of elements it's true to life so yeah big recommendation from me that sounds great um yeah, yeah. also I think 38 year olds might be on the cusp of millennials oh, not really? that that's like the most important thing to pick out from that lovely book review you just did but I think it starts at 82 oh huh I always get it wrong. I don't feel Not like a millennial, so I don't. I don't identify with it. So I always yeah, assume it's people younger are, than me. We are millennials. Oh, yeah. we. Mm. <laughs> That's a shame. <laughs> um, That's what I was thinking. Oh, man. <laughs> Guy, could we have your book recommendation? Yes, indeed. I'm so happy I get to recommend this. It's one of my favorite books. It's Gunter Grass's *The Tin Drum*. Um, and it was formative, and beautiful, and ugly, and Difficult and a joy. It follows a dwarf called Oscar Matsarath, who sort of narrates his life confined in a mental hospital to his doctor, I want to say, um, to, uh, between the years, of, I guess, uh, 19 years before and after, before, during and after the Second World War. And what's wonderful about it is it's kind of um, a carnival of a book it's kind of like a, pic a picaresque almost everything's larger than life it's it's going to grass it is peak i think it's kind of like it uh captures something about the nature of germany and being german um during those years through an insane um kind of dickish character <laughs> called oscar um, as i say he's a dwarf and he's I mean, it's an unreliable narrator in narrator in that he begins he begins narrating it about um, when he's a child, when he's born, and he reckons he's a clear audience infant, and he thinks that his spiritual development and his intellectual development is is completed at birth, and it needed only to affirm itself, uh, and that's that's that. And so he goes through, and uh, it's there's a lot of magical realism in it, and it's um, it's one of those books that when I read it. It seemed as if the writer Gunter Grass was just having a blast when he was writing it. And because of that, it feels like that. If you kind of give up and kind of go with it and just understand, okay, Gunter Grass probably knows what he's doing. I'm just gonna go with it. Um it's one of it's it's a singular experience reading it. I'm gonna read just a really quick short, short bit that kind of gives you yeah. a taste of it. It's one of my favorite passages. All right. So I'm gonna try and go real quick because 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 I'm limited. Um, uh, it starts off, at the, it, this is at the very beginning, he's about to tell a story, right? So he goes, um, you can begin a story in the middle and create confusion by striking out boldly, backward and forward. You can be modern, put aside all mention of time and distance, and when the whole thing is done, proclaim, or, or let someone else proclaim that you have finally, at the last moment, solved the space-time uh, problem. We can declare at the very start that it's impossible to write a novel nowadays, but then behind your own back, so to speak, give birth to a whopper, a novel to end all novels. I've 
also been told that it makes a good impression, an impression of modesty, so to speak. If you begin by saying that a novel can't have a hero anymore because there are no more individualists, because individuality is a thing of the past, because man, each man, all men together, is alone in his loneliness, and no one is entitled to individual loneliness, and all men lumped together make up a lonely mass without names and without heroes. So one of my favorite passages, and it's actually a passage that I kind of pilfered for the very end of my own book. It's about, uh, you know, that individual trying to strive against like a tide of history. And he goes through the entire entirety of, of, of the war. And Oscar reckons, actually, he's the cause of some of the the greatest, I mean, the, the, the biggest historical events um, in Germany. It's one of those books that you will f remember forever. And Oscar will be like a little imp on your shoulder, whispering into your ear, especially if you're a writer. And it's kind of the devil, um, but it's it's the charming kind. <laughs> That's it. That really makes me want to read it. What an energetic recommendation. Um, <laughs> possibly the, one of the more energetic recommendations we've we've had on the show. In you can't help it. That, that, tin, that tin drum is an energetic book, man. Yeah, no, it really, you really have made me want to read it now. So I will report back. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to recommend, uh, a book that is also quite sexy. Um, so maybe that's the theme for today. Um, Summer Air Babes. Yes. It's Sally Rooney's second novel, Normal People, which, nice. um, incidentally has also just been short, uh, long listed for the Booker Prize along with guys. Um, we had Sally on the show last year to talk about her first novel, Conversations with Friends, and I think it was pretty obvious that I really loved that novel, and I couldn't wait to read Normal People, which was only published 18 months after Conversations with Friends, and considering that Rooney is still in her 20s, um, is a pretty amazing achievement, mad, I think. It? It's, yeah. it's absolutely mad. Um, in many ways, Normal People isn't a huge departure from Conversations with Friends. It's still a contemporary novel focused on relationships, the conversations that sort of form these relationships, and how these conversations change the people within them. Um, and the premise is, is pretty simple, sort of in the way that Conversations with Friends was was about uh, two younger women who make uh, two, who have a relationship with an older couple. In some way, it's sort of been distilled in that it's really a love story and a story about a relationship between two people, um, Connell and Marianne. They are two teenagers who go to the same school in a small town in West Ireland, but they come from very different worlds. Connell is very popular in school, um, but his mother cleans the house of Marianne, who lives in a large mansion and is a total social pariah. But despite that, they form a connection and a connection that lasts for a long time in many different iterations as they head off to university together. Um, so it sounds a bit like a frivolous plot of a, a romance novel. And actually, my friend Jess Kim described it as like one day, but literary, which I think is actually sounds like it's throwing shade, but it's kind of true. You know, you, you see these characters I at different moments um, across the years and, and at different times in their relationships. But it's not frivolous. I mean, it's totally engaging. I stayed up all night to read it. I just wanted to know what happened to these characters. I like was a voracious reader in a way that I sort of forgot that I could be. But um, the best feeling. It was it was the best. I mean, it was also bad because I was really tired the next day and like had had this like really emotional experience and was crying and laughing and but um but what I love about Rooney and what she really does in this novel is she takes 
And actually what you do, Guy, too, um, is, is just takes really seriously the conversations that these people have with each other about how they speak and how together the world they form through their conversations um, changes their personality and changes their lives. And it's also, it, it, it has a real specificity to it, both in the characters, but also in the, in the words that they say and the language they speak. And I think, you know, this can also be accused of being a millennial novel, but I think in the best possible way in that she really understands how people of a certain generation speak to each other, both in person, but over text and on computers and, and how they sort of interface and interact. And I just, I just really loved it. I want to read it. Yeah, I can't wait. I'm hoping someone will send it to me. And I hope I get to meet all these people on the list with. Oh, yeah, I'm um, sure you will. Incredible. So I want to, you know, have a chat. Well, Sally was one of our favorite guests. She's the biz. So. Yeah, and it's an amazing list and you totally deserve to be on mm. it. So congratulations again. Thank I'm you. so glad we get the exclusive first post-long list interview. <laughs> I know, wow. <laughs> it's a real honor for us. <laughs> no, but I, I know I I'm, I'm sound like I'm glib, but um, we're really happy for you and we've loved having you on the show. So thank you, Guy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That is all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Guy Gunaratna, Roe Bowens at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. We really love to hear from you. That was a very sort of like smooth computer voice <laughs> i'm so hot <laughs> like the reassuring like bot or something <laughs> like that because my vocal cords are incredibly warmed up <laughs> <laughs> anyway we'll be back in a month until then no that's not until then i'm carrie Blit with octavia bright and this is literary friction